Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. So if you want to start in James chapter 4, beginning there in verse 11, and we're going to read down through chapter 5, verse 12. James writes, James chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the, of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. For your miseries that are coming upon you, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept backed by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned the just. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Lord, I pray now that as I seek to communicate what is your revealed truth, that you would fill me with the power of your spirit so that we could only hear from you. That's why we're here. So God, would you get me far out of the way so that we could leave here knowing that you spoke to us. Thank you that you do. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So not only were, that, were, were these a handful of verses that we just read, but rather all over the place, you might think, you might say. Um, to tie this all together this morning, I do believe it does tie together here in James 4. Um, I want to give a sermon title here on the onset, and I usually do this every week for me in my uh, ADD leaning brain. 
Sometimes a simple sermon title keeps me on track. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Uh, I like to be able to summarize all that we're saying here in one phrase. And so to tie the variety of these verses that we just looked at here in James 4 together, uh, this morning I want to preach from the title, Called Out. Called Out, that's right. Called Out. We've been studying James for some time. I think this is one thing that we've learned at this point. James is not one to shy away from a confrontation. He's, he's rather apt to get up all in our business and not hesitate to call out what needs to be called out. We certainly just read that a bit here in the passage we read. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you were brutally <laughs> called out? You ever been like called out before? Come on, we've all, nobody likes it either. I, I know it's hard to go back to that memory, especially if it was done in a very mean-spirited way. Um, I recently had it done in a very mean-spirited way for my five-year-old. And <laughs> I don't know if this, it just must be God's plan for my life to ensure that most of um, the sin in my life is noticed through the prophetic voice of Judah. Uh, I know I talked about him last week. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to talk about him again. Um, he, he seems to be like the number one voice of, of God to call me out in my life. It was just, and it's usually like, it's, it's, you know, it's a variety of different things. The most common is like, you know, we have like screen time and stuff. You try to limit the amount of time they're, you know, connected, hooked up to the matrix. Um, and so, uh, so Judah's like from time to time will we'll, be in the house and I'll be on my phone or something and he'll say, Dad, no electronics. And it'll just kind of be like, I know, you're right. Just yesterday was a pretty bad one. So yesterday was my uh, three-year-old uh, daughter Evie's birthday party. Today's her third birthday, actually today. Um, it's kind of mind-bending. I have two kids now, three and, and over. It's sort of that life crisis thing happening a bit, but it's okay. Um, so yesterday was Evie's mermaid birthday party at the house. No mermen were allowed, so... All the guys had to get out of the house. Well, they had her little, she's obsessed right now with Under the Sea. The Little Mermaid is the thing right now. It's the jam. And so I said to Judah, Judah, he, poor guy, he's like, I don't want to be here with a mermaid party, you know. And so I brought Judah to Boomers, okay. And I said, Judah, today is all about you, bro, all right. So we're going to do whatever you want. Now, I hadn't been to Boomers in some time. It was a frequent, frequent um, stop for me and my homies in fifth grade. Um, it's where we would kick it. Um, I didn't realize how nostalgic that experience would be, going to Boomers right there off Airport Road. So the second I walk in, it's like the nostalgia effect kicked in. And I Probably a little sensory overload with all the bling, 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 all the video games. So it was just like this experience of stepping into another world, like stepping back into my childhood. So the second I get there, I immediately start thinking about the go-karts. As a kid, I remember distinctly experiences in laser tag, the bumper boats, but the go-karts, man. Like, as, I don't know if you remember being not tall enough to ride the go-karts. That was a tough time. We had to get through that. I remember trying to make myself taller. I would spike my hair so I was tall enough to ride. And so my initial thought is, Judah, we got to get straight to the go-karts. And I'm, So I'm like running through boomers, trying to make sure we get in the front of the line, dragging Judah through boomers. We, we get in line there, and uh, we're in the front of the line. And Judah goes, you know, Dad, I think these go-karts are kind of slow. I'm like, no, son, just wait. You haven't driven with me, you know. And so he had actually been there before. I didn't realize this. And then I'm like, so we're up next. We're about to get in. That's where those little passenger was. And he goes, Dad, didn't you say that this was going to be all about me? (laughs) 
So that collective cry was exactly how I felt. And I was, what can you say? Except, uh-huh, I did. I said that. Uh, didn't you say that we could do whatever I was, yeah. And so I had to do that embarrassing walk with your kid, like through the line, you know, like, excuse me, sorry, kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so a subtle example. What about for you? I don't know when the last time you got called out on something that was obvious. You know, and when you're called out, we're not just talking about someone who mean-spirited says something to you that's not kind, but we're talking about like you're, it's like, yep. Now, let's be honest. None of us enjoy this experience. There's not too many of us who look forward to being called out on our stuff, to being singled out. And, it, you know, there's a sense in which we don't like it, not just because it can be very convicting, but if we're honest, deep down, I think one of the main reasons why we so despise being called out is because we fear rejection. And oftentimes what we think of, of being called at, out, it, it makes us feel rather cast out, right? And, and so that's what we think of a lot with being called out, kind of like a, a player running to first base, not making there in time, and the umpire calls them out. You're out of here. That's often how we might think and feel about being called out, which can make it hard in a relationship with God. Because we know this in Scripture, that one of the main ways that God displays his love and his affection toward us as his children is to tell us not just what we want to hear, but what we desperately need to hear. And God will, from time to time, day to day, hour to hour, he will speak into the hard parts in our life, calling us out, listen, not out of rejection, but out of affection. He calls us out, not out of condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but God will call us out out of invitation, saying there's more than what you're doing. There's, there's a greater life than what you're living. Um, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2 that this is who the people of God are. Did you know this? The word church in the Greek, ekklesia, it literally means called out once. The church of Jesus is the, we're the called out people. Like if you're not into being called out, you might have found the wrong group. Like that's who we are. We're the called out ones. And here's what 1 Peter tells us to give a little bit more context to help us understand why God would and does call us out. It says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim everywhere we go, we proclaim the praises of him, Jesus, who called us out, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see it there? You see, when God calls out, it's not to cast down, but it's to call up. Paul writes it that way in Philippians chapter 3. He says that we've received what is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you know this. When you call someone out who you really love, you're not condemning them, but you actually love them enough to say, I see more in you. So you say, no, come up. Get, get up here. Come. It's a higher standard. I'm calling you out because not out of rejection, because instead I love you and I know what God has called you into. And that, that's why God will call out. I think a great example of this is, is often, there's many with uh, the Apostle Peter. I don't know if there's any character in the Bible who's called out more than this guy. And to make matters worse, it's often by the Son of God. Tough day. You know, so you had a bad day. What happened today? It's like, got called out by Jesus again. It's like, awesome. It wasn't just Jesus, though. It was uh, in Galatians. Uh, it was actually the Apostle Paul as well. There's a story in the book of Galatians where Paul says that him and Peter went toe-to-toe, -to -toe, MMA apostle style. 
And what happened was, as Paul was sent to the Gentiles, they're all bringing this great message of grace that God is no longer a respecter of persons. He doesn't, he doesn't just love these kinds of people and not those kinds of people. God still loves the world. And so we no longer create these classes and distinctions and religious divisions um, as to who God loves. And this is the gospel to the Jew, that God also loves the Gentile. And Peter was preaching this gospel, and he was also hanging out with the Gentiles because he was free in Christ to be a brother to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. However, when the Jewish leaders showed up, you ever had a friend who did this? When other people show up, they kind of start changing their attitude, started acting a little different. All of a sudden, he started distancing from the Gentiles. And he did this big mistake in front of Paul. Not the guy you want to do that whole like half-hearted fake Christianity thing in front of. Paul also, like James, wasn't one to shy away from a confrontation. So the Bible says that Paul withstood Peter to his face. I love that. Got all up in the guy's face. And this is what it tells us in Galatians 2.14. Paul says, just casually in the book of Galatians, he's writing about like the gospel and theology. He's like, yeah, by the way, I got up and... Peter's face. Um, he says, when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Let's stop there. Shouldn't we be straightforward about the truth of the gospel? Why would we not be straightforward about the truth of the gospel? Why do we have such a tendency to, be, to kind of sidestep the truth of the gospel that's the power of God into salvation? Why would we do that? We shouldn't do that. Amen? We should be straightforward about the power of God into salvation. And they weren't being straightforward about the greatest news of all. And so it's, Paul says, so I said to Peter, here's the key phrase, before them all. He's calling them out. He says, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles as not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, Peter, this is not what God has called you into, so I'm going to call you out so I can call you up. So let's get a, a, a handle on this. We've been talking about this, but a great definition of what it means to be called out from God's perspective. It's to be confronted with who you are in light of who God has called you to be. Do you have friends like that in your life? Because they love you, they will confront you with who you are in light of who God has called you to be. A good friend like Paul to get all up in your face and say, I love you so much that I'm going to confront your compromise because I love you and I believe God has so much more for you. This is one of the ways that the word of God should minister to us. We know the Bible is useful for doctrine, for reproof. There's many ministries that God's word accomplishes. When we get in here every Sunday morning, God is doing all sorts of different things. Some of those things that God does from his word is uh, he does the ministry first of clarification, which means to clear up. You ever had God clear things up for you in your faith because of his word? Maybe you were seeing Jesus one way, but then what the word of God did was it wiped a foggy mirror, then you got a clear picture of Jesus. God's word clears things up. God's word also brings consolation. It cheers things up. You ever been comforted by God's word? You were down, you were without purpose, you couldn't see the light, who is Jesus at the end of the tunnel. You read God's word and you were cheered up by the hope that's in Jesus. God's word also brings edification, which means to build up. God will use his word to fortify our faith. You ever had your faith fortified with the truth of doctrine and God's word? It should. But God's word also accomplishes the ministry of exhortation. Some of you have the spiritual gift of exhortation. It's to bring up. This is where you are. This is the standard and the life that God has called you to. I think we could safely say that James has this gift, right? James is a gifted exhorter. 
we've seen, you know, you don't go to the book of James because you're like, you know, I've had a bad day. And I just need some comfort. I just need someone to tell me, just relax. Jesus loves you. And then you read James and you're like, oh, I'm not saved. Great. I, now, you know, things were bad. Now I'm questioning my eternal security. You know, Because James is often the guy who, we, we need him, right? Like, we need the exhorter, but we also need the comforter. We need the guy who's like all about doctrine. We need the guy who's all about the gospel. Clear. It's the beauty of the body of Christ. And we need every part. James is that part of the body that is certainly calling us to the standard of Jesus. Confronting who we are in light of who God has called us to be. And we actually saw him do that in those scriptures that we read. In the scriptures that we just read, James casually yet consecutively calls out these five different characters in the church. Even the language he uses to talk to them, he doesn't just say things like, hey guys, here's how you plan, okay? You gotta, or here's, here's how you handle your wealth and riches. Chapter 5, verse 1 and chapter 4, verse 13 both begin with James saying this phrase, ready? Come now. Come now, you. Right? Imagine that. James comes in church and he's like, okay. Come now. Come here. Who's the materialist? Come now. It's almost like Bro, chill, you know? Like he's using this exhortive, calling out language. We see five characters there in the verses that we just read that James calls out. I've named them for us, okay? Uh, the first person that James calls out is the incompetent judge. Second person he calls out is the independent planner. Third person he calls out is the indulgent hoarder. Fourth person he calls out is the impatient grumbler. The fifth person he calls out is the inconsistent committer. A called out cast of characters. Let's look at each of these, and I want to encourage us, in light of the love of Jesus, if Jesus calls you out, let him. He loves you. Um, as I was studying, I, I'll make sure I remind you of this every week, I never preach what I don't myself eat. I'll never serve what I myself don't eat. And so I got a nice dose of calling out uh, in the past two days as I was studying for this message. Uh, the Lord calling out some things in my life. And let me also say another thought about this as we look at these. Um, do your best not to think about someone else. It's, it's been said that one of the greatest evidences of self-righteousness is that you hear a message about self-righteousness and think about someone else. Oh yeah, they're so self-righteous. This would be such a good word for them. Let's be swift to hear and, to, and have hearts that are humble to receive what God would say to us. I'm not saying that you have to like force yourself into thinking that you're this indulgent hoarder. Okay, we'll get there. But let the spirit of God, let's just pray one more time. Holy Spirit, as we look at these, would you speak to us? Get Andrew's words out of here so that you can speak into our lives so we can become more like you. Amen? Amen. First thing we have is we have the incompetent judge. Here's the first person that James calls out. And to the incompetent judge, he says, do not speak evil, one more time, of one another, brethren, verse 11. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And here's the deal. There's only one lawgiver. Some translations say, and judge. There's only one. The point is he's making here is it's not you. And he is able to both save and to destroy who, here's the big call out question, who are you to judge another? And here's the answer. No one. 
I am an incompetent judge. That's what he's saying here. The word incompetent, if you don't know what that word means, it's not having the necessary skills to do something successfully. In the legal world, which that's what James is talking about here, incompetent is to be not qualified to act in a particular capacity. James is saying, who of you are qualified to act in the capacity of lawgiver and judge? And he says at the end there, who are you? And the answer, of course, is no one. He's speaking first to this tendency of the heart to assume that you, as a follower of Jesus, are God's enforcer in this world. Now, now this is certainly not who we've been called to be. Uh, the book of Ephesians lays it out simply uh, about who we are as Christians. It says, now you, therefore, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but here's who we are as Christians. We are fellow citizens with the saints, and we are members of the household of God. What are we to each other? Fellow strugglers, fellow citizens, all pursuing the same grace in Jesus. Amen. Fellow citizens. There's this tendency sometimes within the church to, well, sort of rise above the fellow citizen role. And be like, yeah, I'm a fellow citizen, but I have this unique anointing to police the church. Officer Andrew, reporting for duty. I'm here to inspect. It's like a Christian Matt Fragan. That's what you are, you know? You come to church and you go on Instagram. And then you send the picture to someone else. Did you see this? Pulled over. Okay. Lock them up. Okay, now, first of all, here's what we need to remember about... Um, those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. None. No condemnation for those. That, so we, we need to get that out of the way. Now don't get me wrong, okay? There is condemnation. That's not what that's saying. It's not saying there's no such thing as condemnation. John chapter 3, Jesus says, listen, I didn't come here to condemn you. You already were condemned in your sin. I came to save you out of your condemnation. But for those who have been saved out of their condemnation, there is no more condemnation. Condemnation doesn't exist for anyone who's in Jesus because Jesus was condemned for us. So we're never condemned. We can't ever be condemned. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. Paul says it this way. He says, who is he then to condemn? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. And you know what he's trying to say here? Jesus is the one who has the right to condemn, who is even at the right hand of God. That's a seat of judgment and authority. And you know what he does? He makes intercession for us. Who is he who condemns? I know Jesus is the one that has all authority in heaven on earth to pronounce a verdict, to execute just judgment, to execute his wrath, to execute his righteousness. Yet the one who has the seat to judge left that seat became a servant, and died on the cross and rose to conquer our sin and gave us grace. And even right now, he's not up in heaven as a sin police. He is interceding for us. What a great example. So, so just out, out of the gate here, we need to understand that we are not incompetent to do what only God is called and qualified to do. Be the condemning judge. He does that. In, and even the one who is competent to do that and qualified he lovingly sacrifices and he intercedes for those that are hurting. But, but I want to, for a second, before I think some of you right now, you're going, amen. I just want to stop there for a second. Okay? 
Um, this doesn't mean, as we spent already time in the beginning talking about, that you don't desperately need people to call you out. It's not what we're talking about here. Oh, this is one of those verses. Here, Matthew 6, rappers got it tatted. Tupac made a hit about it. Only God can judge me. Preach it, Andrew. And so you take this, and, and the friend who really loves you and knows you, the country, they go, hey, look, um, I'm not perfect. You know, I got a plank in my eye. I know I'm sinful. But there, look, there's sin in your life. I love you. I'm... Listen, bro. Judge not, lest you be judged. You want to get judged? Don't judge me. And we totally rip that verse out of context. That's actually not what James is talking about here. He's not, by the way, um, because he's doing it. You know what I mean? Like, he's actually, he's being kind of judgmental, actually, a little bit. He's like, you guys are a bunch of evil speakers, okay? Like, you kind of messed up, right? So, so James is not going to condemn the very thing that he's doing in writing this letter. What he's condemning, and there's, there's a, almost like an angle of being judgmental and condemning, is verse 11, speaking evil of one another. That's just the specific judgment he's talking about here. He's not talking about being a good friend and exhorting someone. He's talking about um, this Greek word he uses, kata alia, kata alia. And William Barclay gave the definition, he's a scholar of scripture, and he said this is what this word means. Speaking evil, it's the sin of those who meet in corners and gather in little groups to pass on confidential information which destroy the good name of those who are not there to defend themselves. calling it out. If you want to be a brother in Christ and go to that person and love them in the name of Jesus and exhort them and call them to a holy life, by all means, we need to stir one another up into love and good works. I would not be where I am except for the people that pointed out the stuff in my life. This is sin. This is not making you look more spiritual, even though you think it is. This is not you doing God and the church a favor. This is you doing Satan a favor. Little groups, these little corners, and everybody's there to hear about it except the person you're talking about. And you are subjecting yourself and asserting yourself as their judge. And here's what I found. I know at least in my life when I've struggled with this sin, it's been because, here's what I noticed. You ever notice this too? It's like, whenever we stand behind the spotlight of condemnation, we're always able to hide our sin in the dark. It's usually the person that's going around with the evil speaking, kind of, have you heard about that? What they're trying to do is divert the attention away from their brokenness. And here's what scripture says. Here's what we should do. Walk in the light. Let's just, let's just all be broken together. Isn't that a nice way to go about this? And we all desperately need each other. We're all beggars showing other beggars where to get the bread. Come on, let's go. Let's go to Jesus. That's the right way to do this. Don't assert yourself as the judge. Uh, you're not qualified to do it. Amen? Let's be like Jesus who those people, listen, and maybe it's someone in your life that you don't have a relationship to go with them. Like, and you have this particular opinion about how, what they're doing. Maybe you um, bring it to Jesus. And pray for them. Maybe you enter into a loving relationship and engage with them because you care about them. And you're not just trying to win the argument and prove that you're right. You want to win them to a certain life. All right? And so that's only Jesus that has that role, the incompetent judge. Now, the hard thing for me is, like, these are five little mini-sermons. So um, someone say, move on. Good job. Point number two. All right? Number two is the independent planner. 
second person he calls out. We're going in a whole different direction now, okay? The independent planner. The next person he calls out there in verse 13, the independent planner, he says, come now, here's the call out, you who say. So this is out of the bunch of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what this person's saying is a evidence of what's in their heart. Here's what they're saying. Here's what's in their heart. Today or tomorrow, we will, keyword will, go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. But you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, this should be in your heart, whatever the Lord wills. We shall live and do this or that. Not my will, but your will be done. And any other attitude is boasting. and He calls, uh, he calls it arrogance and it's evil. Instead, how should we live our lives? When we know to do good, we should do it. And when we don't do it, it's sin. Uh, the independent planner. Do you see the independent planner in there? Uh, the person that um, doesn't need God because they got it all figured out. Key word there of independent planning is will. Will. We will. This is The independent planner, they think that their plans in their life is invincible. And, and they're, they're planning and envisioning the future to be exactly as they will it to be. This is an unsurrendered will, an independent planner, someone who has projected the future to be exactly as they plan it. Now, let me stop for a second. And for some of you, you're like, amen. That's why I don't make any plans. <laughs> and your friends are like, we know, we know. <laughs> what are you doing this weekend? Nothing, okay? I'm a follower of Jesus. I wake up and I just pursue whatever assignment he puts before me. In your house, usually. All right? So, okay, so let, let's lay this out. Uh, James is not calling out the intentional planner. We should all be intentional planners. It's not sinful to plan. We need to get this out of the way. Uh, the scriptures tell us in Proverbs 21, verse 5, that the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty, surely to poverty. So every week, all of our team leads and our staff, we get on this program called Planning Center. And we make sure everyone has the right role and that everyone knows where they're going to be. Imagine if Sunday we just showed up and no one was scheduled to be anywhere. It would lead to poverty. We would be bankrupt as a church and we would close, okay? Like, it's a joke. But the idea is without a plan, here's the problem with not planning, the future's coming. Ready or not. And so it's wise to plan. It's biblical to plan. If you've got a problem with plans, you need to, you know, take it up with people like Moses. We need to take it up with people like Nehemiah. You got to take it up with Noah. That guy had a plan for that boat. He didn't know what he was doing. But see, it's not wrong to have a plan. It's wrong to put your faith and your trust in your plans. It's wrong for your plans to become God. It's wrong for your God to become subservient to your plans. There's two different ways to go about this. There's one way that says, Lord, this is my will. Let it be done. Let my will be done on earth and in heaven, Lord. This is my will, God. And there's a way to pray that way too, isn't there? God, this is what I want to do. Please bless it. We will miss everything that God would want to do in our lives if we think that way. The prayer is this, God, what do you will? What do you want to do? Help me be in tune with that. Help me not be an independent planner. When you're an independent planner, 
James is calling out a few things. First thing you're forgetting is that uh, tomorrow is a mystery. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus said, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, don't even worry about it. How do we know what's going to happen tomorrow? It's, it's a, only God knows the future. We are bound to the present. In addition to that, he, he also mentions the speed of life. Not only is tomorrow not promised, or rather, not only is tomorrow a mystery, but tomorrow is also not promised. You have your, your our lives, they're, they're, James is saying, our lives are short because they're fast. It was the great late theologian, John Mayer, who said, stop this train. I want to get off and go home again. John Mayer wrote that song. I recently was reading an article about uh, an interview with him, and he was talking about his quarter-life crisis at 25 and how he was just getting older and older and older. And this is certainly sad when all you have to live for is that short life you have. James is saying, no, listen, life is short, eternity is long. Put that into perspective with your plans. Are you living for your own little purposes, which aren't even promised, your own little life, which is here today, it's gone tomorrow. He says, it's like a vanishing vapor. It's like a spritz of Febreze in the air. There it is for a moment, and now it's gone. Every life before us, every life after us will not be marked by what's done within the short time it had, but it will be marked by what was laid up for eternity, for Jesus. And so he says, have that in your minds. Your life is too short to be an independent planner. Instead, here's what you ought to say. God, you are eternal. Thank you that you've numbered my days. Help me do the same and live dependent on what you have for my life. You are, you are the God who says that I am your workmanship. You've created me for good works. God, help me walk in them. That's the prayer. Instead, whatever the Lord wills, that we should do. Here's it in Scripture, Proverbs 16.3. This is the ESV. It says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Just commit your life to him. Commit your work to the Lord. Give him room. That's where it starts. Even the way he ends it. Whoever knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. A lot of us, listen, the reason why we're not walking in God's will today is because we're so preoccupied with God's will for tomorrow. We're like, oh God, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? God's like, you have no idea. Here's what you can do. My will right now. So, so do, good, do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Plan according to my word. And here's the promise of Proverbs 16, 9, that when a man's heart plans his way, the Lord is always faithful to direct his steps. You ever had um, God reroute you? Rerouting, okay? God's a much better listener than Siri, by the way, okay? And he, he knows every detail, and it's like, okay, I made a wrong turn. It's okay. Or you're like, God, this is the plan, navigating, and then, oh, oh, accident, detour. The Lord, I, th I remember our church two years ago, it was a group of 20 of us, and, or a year and a half ago, and Man, I was so excited about this plan I had of, like, how it was going to roll out. We were going to do these, like, monthly preview, like, like big parties. Like, there was not going to be techno music. I don't know why I did that. But um, <laughs> it was like, man, we were going to do this. And then we just started praying, and God's like, no, the Spirit would not permit us to do that. And he directed us elsewhere. Here's the idea of how to fight independent planning. I'm going to give you one phrase. Ready? Plan in pencil. Plan in pencil. Don't not plan with a blank sheet of paper. Have a plan. It honors God. It shows him that you want to be a good steward of your life. But plan in such a way that there is room for God to interrupt your plans because he's God and not your plans. Amen? Third, the indulgent hoarder. The indulgent hoarder. 
you have the incompetent judge that he calls out. Then you have the independent planner who's just convinced that their plan for their life is God's plan for their life, and they need to surrender it to whatever God wants. And then you have the indulgent hoarder that James calls out. Come now, verse chapter 5, verse 1, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Now that is a, um, um, almost like a creative use of speech copying his big brother who said that we should lay up treasure in heaven. And he's talking to this person that's a materialist hoarding all the things in life that they can get. That's the purpose of their life is to possess and attain this earth. And he says, you're laying up treasure, but it's judgment. That's the treasure you're laying up. Interesting. He says, even this person who's this um, indulgent living hoarder, he says, indeed the wages of the laborers um, who mowed your fields, which kept you back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth, that don't be confused with Sabbath. This is a word that literally in Hebrew means armies or hosts. This is the God of angel armies, as Chris Tomlin would say, I think. One of those guys. Um, this is the Lord of angels, the Lord of hosts. And um, these, these workers that were taken advantage of um, by these wealthy people, um, it's interesting, their, their grievance and the sin that's been committed against them, isn't this interesting? The cry of it has risen to God. There's some sins in the Bible that actually the scriptures say in a unique way, God hears the cry. Like when no one else does. Isn't that interesting? There's some, God heard the cry of Israel when everyone else was dead to it. It's just always amazing to know that God is listening to every cry. And he's in tune with it. Even when no one else can hear it or is paying attention. And here's this cry going up to heaven. Those who have been victimized and taken advantage of by the wealthy. This is the wealth oppressing the poor. And he says in verse 5 to this person, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You've lived an indulgent lifestyle. You have fattened your hearts... Come on, James. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You're storing up everything in your life, and what you're doing is you're getting fat to be a sacrifice, is what he's saying. He's not pulling any punches. You have condemned and you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, um, we want to make sure we always understand a proper theology of stuff, okay? That's a big seminary term, a theology of stuff, okay? Um, stuffology, all right? Um, what James is not saying here is that it's sinful to have things. He's certainly not saying that. Um, he's not saying that it's sinful for God to grow your business and for you to live in God's blessing in your life and have your comfortable space. You know, that's, that's a poverty gospel that says that I'm only right with God if I'm really suffering. You know, I've got to suffer to be right with God. It's like willing suffering. That's weird. We don't do that. Okay? It's, the, it's the opposite of the prosperity gospel which says, like, I need Jesus to be wealthy. Well, this is a, a gospel that says, like, um, Jesus needs me to be poor, okay? And they're, they're, they're both two sides of the same broken gospel. Um, the scripture gives us a generous gospel. A, a God who, in his grace, has given us everything we have, from our salvation to our bank account, from our right standing with him to the iPhone in our pocket. To the home we have, to the kids we have, to the job we have, to the comfort, to whatever extent it is, to the breath in our lungs. James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above and the extension of God's grace because he's a generous God, so generous that he became poor. 
so that we, through his poverty, could become rich in him. It's amazing. That generosity makes generous people. The opposite of experiencing that gospel is to be a hoarder. And that's what this person is described as. A person who, you know, there's a big difference, right, between having stuff and your stuff having you. In one of our favorite books, we read it last year, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, there's a chapter called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The blessedness of going, Lord, whatever I have, it came from you in the first place. So I, I'm not going to feel guilty to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy your blessings. You don't add sorrow with your blessings, but I'm going to hold it with an open hand because they're not mine. And I don't want to squeeze my hand tightly and, and hoard it because what happens is when I squeeze my hand tightly upon the things that I have, the things that I have, they hold me. And so Jesus said, Here, here's how we live. As those who are in Christ, he says, here's what you do. You lay up for yourselves treasures. Uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's why. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, that will, that's where your heart's going to be also. Where you're directing the direction of your possessions, the, the perspective of your life, how you are stewarding what God has been really generous with in your life shows where your heart is. It shows what you treasure. It shows what you love. And he says, here's how we should live. We should live in such a way that we... Uh, it kind of reminds me of March Madness, right? Do little layups. No? We lay up the treasures in heaven. We, we surrender it to God. We, we, we give it to Jesus. We say, everything you've given me is yours. So as it's in my life, I'm not going to hold on to it with a tight fist. I don't want to be a reservoir of your blessings. I want to be a stream. I want to be a channel. And there's a big difference there. There's a big difference there. Uh, being someone who says, God, everything you've given me is to not just bless me, but be a blessing to others. That's why God blessed Abraham. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Why? So that you can be a blessing. That's a person who's experienced a generous gospel. Not a prosperity gospel, not a poverty gospel, but a heart that recognizes everything we have is from Jesus. That heart is going to treasure the things of Jesus and surrender those things to Jesus. The fourth person is an impatient grumbler. The impatient grumbler. Um, this next person here. Uh, it's interesting, he's talking about the judgment that's to come to those corrupt, wealthy who are oppressing the poor. And then it's as if he speaks to a majority of, of this church who was most likely poor. We know that there were wealthy Christians. It's okay to be a wealthy Christian. Um, but there were also, in the most part in the early uh, church in the first century, it was mostly impoverished Christians. And it's very likely that as James is talking about those who have been taken advantage of, those that are hearing this letter are going, yeah, that's me. I was someone that did my hard work and I didn't get paid to feed my family. And so now he's going to speak into the life that's suffering and has gone through repetitive hard times. We talked last week about the folly of the common statement that, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That is not in the Bible and that is debunked by life. Um, often when the going gets tough, sometimes the tough gets tougher and tougher, and tougher, and it's like, where's my justice? Where's my breakthrough? Where, 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 you know, it's just kind of like setback after setback after setback, and it's to that person that he says in verse 7, therefore be patient. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. He's come. He's, he's going to come again. Your, your payday's coming, 
and he's going to come on a white horse. He's speaking to the hope of the restoration of all things through Jesus. And he says we need to be patient in light of that as we suffer. That we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And as we go through those tribulations, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. He's calling us to patience. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's the key here. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, again, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of this kind of patience and suffering. We count them blessed who endured. You look at Job, the perseverance of Job. You see the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, there's two options here that it seems like James presents as you're walking through trial and suffering. The call is patience. The call is to endure. The call is to fix your eyes on the hope of Jesus' return. The call is to even take the prophets who suffered and see how they were blessed. The call is to persevere. And it, there's, I think, two manifestations, almost like two expressions uh, of our heart that we have to wrestle with. One, he says, is a heart that's established, right? That's what we want. Like, anybody else want, want to stop being moved by everything, just me? Like, it's like, I, I don't want to be the guy that every time I get sideswiped by life, I, had to go, I have to go spin it around in my faith, okay? Like, I, I want to be someone whose heart is established in the things of God because he's my rock, and, and we can be. That's attainable in Jesus, right? And so that's one option. He says the, the other extreme is, that is in your suffering, in your patience, in your waiting. You've been, maybe you've been praying for something for a long time, and it's just waiting. It's like, okay, I want to be established, but my tendency is to become moved, and the expression often of that, he says, is grumbling. Grumbling. Even it's, What's the word for that? It's a, an onomatopoeia, isn't it? Andrew, stop it. What does that even mean? I don't even know. All right. It's a word that sounds like what it means. You know what I mean? Okay? It, it's just, gr even the word grumble, it's a grumble. You know, it's just like, and if you've been in Boca for any length of time, you've heard this noise before. Like, this, I think, is the sound of Boca. It's two noises. And it's grumble, okay? And it's, and it's so subtle. It's usually, it's in a line, you're, at the, you're checking out. And you're fine, you're, you're patient, you're a Christian. You're letting patience have its perfect work. You maybe become perfect and complete like nothing. And there you are with your groceries. And the, 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 the light's on, but there's no one there. <laughs> Happens. And you're like, this is okay. And then there's a little grumble behind you. Like a garbage disposal, grumble, right? And someone goes, do they only have two people working the register? And you're like, Yep. <laughs> Sad. And next thing you know, grumble. Ma Where's the manager? You start losing it. Or traffic. You start your day. Joy to the world. Okay. It's my addition for the worship team. All right. Then you're in Next thing you know, oh my goodness. Gr grumble. Like, <laughs> this is like, I think it's the noise of humans. I think like, you know, God hears everything. I wonder if he just hears that all day long. Like, just the grumble, you know. The grumble, the grumble. And he even says you grumble against each other. That's often how impatience manifests, right? You got frustrated with God, but God's not there for you to take it out on directly. So the person walks in, you grumble against them. And they're like, what's up with you, you know? Grumbling, grumbling. You know, if God were to play back the noise of our hearts... Let's just say this past week, 
What was the sound that heaven was hearing from my life? Was it rejoicing? Or was it grumbling? Grumbling. You know, praise, worship, honoring Jesus will establish your heart. Grumble, it just, it knocks you even more off kilter. You start to grumble. And so here's what he's calling us to, establish your hearts. And here's how he says to do this. He gives a great example. He goes, look at Job. If anybody had a reason to grumble, it was poor Job. The guy lost everything. Talk about suffering. Talk about patience. And there's two things that Job held on to. Job held on to the promises of God. And Job held on to the purposes of God. Which were all hinging upon who God was in his character. And so Job hinges hard on that. That was an established heart. Establish your hearts in knowledge of God's promises and purposes. And so that even in the end, as bad as the suffering was, he knew that God had a purpose for it. Um, that will establish your heart. When you see God with you in the storm, when you see God faithful to you despite what you're going through, it will lead you from being a grumbling person to an established person that knows that he's always faithful. You know his promises, and they are conditioned upon his character, and God cannot lie. So he will never promise something that uh, he cannot pay off on. Um, but also his purposes. Lord, you have a purpose. You look at Job. You go, man, it, it was not the life that any of us would want, but to see how God still had a purpose when no one else could see it. This will do something to your heart. I, I think there's a great expression of this. Charles Spurgeon, he says it this way. He says, if a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. <laughs> Rightly so. If a surgeon, I just love that Spurgeon used the word surgeon. I don't know why, but because it rhymes with his name. Anyway, yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. Maybe for some of us, that's the shift we need to establish our hearts. You've seen God as a knife attacker rather than a surgeon. And when you see him as a God who's good all the time, James says it here at the end. He says, very compassionate and merciful. It speaks of the tenderness of who God is. You will welcome his surgical work in your life because you know he knows. Amen? Let's close with this last one, which is going to bring us to Jesus here. And we'll invite the worship team up. It's the inconsistent committer. The inconsistent committer. He says, I love that he says, but above all there in verse, verse 12. Like we just read some pretty heavy stuff. Like don't judge, speak evil. Don't plan without God. Um, you know, don't uh, take advantage of your poor workers. Uh, don't grumble in your suffering. But above all, I just love James. James is like, this is a big deal, okay? Out of all that, that's important. Here's a big deal. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be what? Yes, and your no be what? Lest you fall into judgment. He, he closes out with describing um, a, a kind of person that is a committed person, but it's often uh, inconsistent in their ability to keep what they've committed. And he says, what you need to do as a consistent committer is you need to let your yes be yes. This is just talking about in life. Saying, don't, don't swear, hey, I swear I'll be there. I swear by this, I swear by that. He says, here as Christians, how we can be a light in this world, just a simple light, is don't say yes. First of, first of all, don't say yes unless you know you could keep that promise. And don't say no if all of a sudden you're going to be like, okay, never mind, yeah, I can, I can be there. He's talking about sort of this inconsistency in our commitments. And, and it really is, first and foremost, it's rooted in a relationship with God 
that allows you not to be the, a slave to everybody else's needs, first and foremost. Some of you, that's your life right now. You do not know how to say no. So you're not able to let your yes be yes because you got too many commitments to say yes to. So you say it on the front end, I'll be there. I got you. I got your back. And maybe it's afraid of um, uh, man. People pleasing is, is at the heart of it. So yeah, I want them to like me, but I don't know about you, but I've noticed this, especially as my family's grown. God wants to develop you and grow you, but you need to learn this, that anytime you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So I've learned this. Like, I've had people so mad at me because they try to get a hold of me on Monday or Tuesday, and I don't, if it's not an emergency, I don't call them back or text them back or Instagram them back. I don't know. And I've said, well, um, if I were to say yes to you on Monday and Tuesday, then I would have to say no to my kids on Monday and Tuesday. And I've blocked out Monday and Tuesday in my life to say I'm all in as dad. And I want you to know that before I'm anybody else's pastor, I'm your pastor. Because when you say yes to one thing, you say no to another. And Jesus was really good at this, like a lot of things, right? But Jesus, he was so close with his father. He lived in such proximity to his father that he only sought to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't come to earth to do every single thing and meet every single need. But he wanted to ensure that I, I, I just said yes to the things you wanted me to. And God, I said no to the things you wanted me to. It's a great, a great little practice of life. Not to be an inconsistent committer, but be someone who through prayer is able to say no when necessary. And when I do need to say yes, I say yes. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm really good at saying no. That's my love language. It's like, you want to hang out? No. Why? I got to say yes to more me time. You know, it's like. Some of, you need to, some of you need to say more yes. Some of you need to come to a soulless community. I'm so busy. You've been, maybe you need to say yes to being in fellowship with God's people. So like it's about priority. It's about priorities. It's about organizing your life in accordance to God's will. And here's why. So at the end of the day, we can look like Jesus to this world. That's what he's wanting to do in our lives. God is not going to call us out so that I can become a better version of me that I like to see in the mirror. The reason why God calls us out as his people is he wants us to stand out in culture. He wants us to stand out as a people that are a little different. That people look on and they go, what is it with you in the way that you don't gossip like everyone else? What is it with you with the way that you are so open when life changes directions? What is it with you? You're so blessed, yet your hands are so open, you're so generous. What is it with you? You have been suffering. You have been waiting. You have been walking through a season of scarcity, yet your heart is so established. What is it with you? Every time you say yes, you mean it. That can go a long way. What is it with you? You're, you're, you're not a slave to people's demands. You're able to say no. What is it with me? You say Jesus is with me. It's a light. Now, here's where I want to make sure we steer this as we close out. Um, I don't know about you. There's a tendency for me when I see the things that are called out in my life, there's a tendency to look within for the solutions. Anybody else? Like, man, I don't, I don't commit well. I'm, I'm, I'm a grumbler. I'm a hoarder. I'm independent in my plans. I'm judgmental. And there's this natural tendency to go, okay, let me try to fix me you end up just spun around in your own issues. And so what we want to do now is we want to do what? We want to look to Jesus. He's the one that we look to for the solutions. You know, when you look to Jesus, you know who you find? You find a competent judge, amen? And though he's competent to be a judge, he's a gracious, 
loving, sacrificing Savior. When you look to Jesus, you find someone that's a, a great example of dependent planning. On earth, he said, not my will, God, but your will be done. When you look to Jesus, you see a wealthy man, a wealthy king who left it all for the betterment of us. When you look to Jesus, you see an example of suffering. You see Jesus, who even when he was persecuted and reviled, he did not revile back. He didn't grumble in his suffering. He was established in who God was and how faithful God was in his suffering. When you look to Jesus, this is such good news. You see someone who is faithful to perform everything he promises. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So let's go to him. Let's take a moment. If you want to stand, you want to sit, you want to reflect, you want to kneel, let's just go and look to Jesus right now as the one who saves us as he calls. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.